Section 1 of History of the United States, Part 7, Progressive Democracy and the World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thelma Meyer. History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary Ritter Beard. Part 7. Progressive Democracy and the World War. Section 1. The Evolution of Republican Policies. 1901-1913. Chapter 21. The Evolution of Republican Policies. 1901-13. The Personality and Early Career of Roosevelt. On September 14, 1901, when Theodore Roosevelt took the oath of office, the presidency passed to a new generation and a leader of a new type, recalling, if comparisons must be made, Andrew Jackson rather than any Republican predecessor. Roosevelt was brusque, hardy, restless, and fond of action. Quote, a young fellow of infinite dash and originality, end quote, as John Hay remarked of him, combining the spirit of his old college, Harvard, with the breezy freedom of the plains, interested in everything, a new species of game, a new book, a diplomatic riddle, or a novel theory of history or biology. Though only 43 years old, he was well-versed in the art of practical politics. Coming upon the political scene in the early 80s, he had associated himself with the reformers in the Republican Party. But he was no mugwump. From the first, he vehemently preached the doctrine of party loyalty. If beaten in the convention, he voted the straight ticket in the election. For twenty years he adhered to this rule, and during a considerable portion of that period he held office as a spokesman of his party. He served in the New York legislature as head of the Metropolitan Police Force, as Federal Civil Service Commissioner under President Harrison, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President McKinley, and as governor of the Empire State. Political managers of the old school spoke of him as, quote, brilliant but erratic, end quote. They soon found him equal to the shrewdest in negotiation and action. Foreign Affairs, the Panama Canal. The most important foreign question confronting President Roosevelt on the day of his inauguration, that of the Panama Canal, was a heritage from his predecessor. The idea of a water route across the isthmus, long a dream of navigators, had become a living issue after the historic voyage of the battleship Oregon around South America during the Spanish War. But before the United States could act, it had to undo the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty, made with Great Britain in 1850, providing for the construction of the canal under joint supervision. This was finally effected by the Hay-Ponsfoot Treaty 
of 1901, authorizing the United States to pursue a loan on condition that there should be no discriminations against other nations in the matter of rates and charges. This accomplished, it was necessary to decide just where the canal should be built. One group in Congress favored the route through Nicaragua. In fact, two official commissions had already approved that location. Another group favored cutting the way through Panama after purchasing the rights of the old French company, which under the direction of de Lesseps, the hero of the Suez Canal, had made a costly failure some twenty years before. After a heated argument over the merits of the two plans, preference was given to the Panama route. As the Isthmus was then a part of Colombia, President Roosevelt proceeded to negotiate with the government at Bogota, a treaty authorizing the United States to cut a canal through its territory. The treaty was easily framed, but it was rejected by the Colombian Senate much to the president's exasperation. Quote, you could no more make an agreement with the Colombian rulers, end quote, he exclaimed, quote, than you could nail jelly to a wall, end quote. He was spared the necessity by a timely revolution. On November 3, 1903, Panama renounced its allegiance to Colombia. And three days later, the United States recognized its independence. This amazing incident was followed shortly by the signature of a treaty between Panama and the United States, in which the latter secured the right to construct the long-discussed canal in return for a guarantee of independence and certain cash payments. The rights and property of the French concern were then bought and the final details settled. A lock rather than a sea-level canal was agreed upon. Construction by the government directly instead of by private contractors was adopted. Scientific medicine was summoned to stamp out the tropical diseases that had made Panama a plague spot. Finally, in 1904, as the president said, quote, the dirt began to fly, end quote. After surmounting formidable difficulties, engineering, labor, and sanitary, the American forces in 1913 joined the waters of the Atlantic and the Pacific. Nearly 8,000 miles were cut off the sea voyage from New York to San Francisco. If any were inclined to criticize President Roosevelt for the way in which he snapped off negotiations with Colombia and recognized the Panama revolutionists, their attention was drawn to the magnificent outcome of the affair. Notwithstanding the treaty with Great Britain, Congress passed a tolls bill discriminating in rates in favor of American ships. It was only on the urgent insistence of President Wilson that the measure was later repealed. The Conclusion of the Russo-Japanese War
The applause which greeted the president's next diplomatic stroke was unmarred by censure of any kind. In the winter of 1904, there broke out between Japan and Russia a terrible conflict over the division of spoils in Manchuria. The fortunes of war were with the agile forces of Nippon. In this struggle, it seems, President Roosevelt's sympathies were mainly with the Japanese, although he observed the proprieties of neutrality. At all events, Secretary Hay wrote in his diary on New Year's Day, 1905, that the president was quote, quite firm in his view. That we cannot permit Japan to be robbed a second time of her victory. End quote. Referring to the fact that Japan, ten years before, after defeating China on the field of battle, had been forced by Russia, Germany, and France to forego the fruits of conquest. Whatever the president's personal feelings may have been, he was aware that Japan, despite her triumphs over Russia, Was staggering under a heavy burden of debt. At a suggestion from Tokyo, he invited both belligerents in the summer of 1905 to join in a peace conference. The celerity of their reply was aided by the pressure of European bankers, who had already come to a substantial agreement that the war must stop. After some delay. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, was chosen as the meeting place for the spokesmen of the two warring powers. Roosevelt presided over the opening ceremonies with fine urbanity, thoroughly enjoying the justly earned honor of being, for the moment, at the center of the world's interest. He had the satisfaction of seeing the conference end in a treaty of peace and amity. The Monroe Doctrine applied to Germany. Less spectacular than the Russo-Japanese settlement, but not less important, was a diplomatic passage at arms with Germany over the Monroe Doctrine. This clash grew out of the inability or unwillingness of the Venezuelan government to pay debts due foreign creditors. Having exhausted their patience in negotiations, England and Germany, in December 1901, sent battleships to establish what they characterized as quote, a peaceful blockade end quote, of Venezuelan ports. Their action was followed by the rupture of diplomatic relations. There was a possibility that war. And the occupation of Venezuelan territory might result. While unwilling to stand between a Latin American country and its creditors, President Roosevelt was determined that debt collecting should not be made an excuse for European countries to seize territory. He therefore urged arbitration of the dispute, winning the assent of England and Italy. Germany, with a somewhat haughty air, refused to take the milder course. The president, learning of this refusal, called the German ambassador to the White House and informed him, in very precise terms, that unless the imperial German government consented to arbitrate, 
Admiral Dewey would be ordered to the scene with instructions to prevent Germany from seizing any Venezuelan territory. A week passed and no answer came from Berlin. Not baffled, the President again took the matter up with the ambassador, this time with even more firmness. He stated in language admitting of but one meaning that unless within forty-eight hours the Emperor consented to arbitration, American battleships, already cold and cleared, would sail for Venezuelan waters. The hint was sufficient. The Kaiser accepted the proposal, and the President, with the fine irony of diplomacy, complimented him publicly on, quote, being so staunch an advocate of arbitration, end quote. In terms of the Monroe Doctrine, this action meant that the United States, while not denying the obligations of debtors, would not permit any move on the part of European powers that might easily lead to the temporary or permanent occupation of Latin American territory. The Santo Domingo Affair The same issue was involved in a controversy over Santo Domingo, which arose in 1904. The Dominican Republic, like Venezuela, was heavily in debt, and certain European countries declared that unless the United States undertook to look after the finances of the embarrassed debtor, they would resort to armed coercion. What was the United States to do? The danger of having some European power strongly entrenched in Santo Domingo was too imminent to be denied. President Roosevelt acted with characteristic speed, and notwithstanding strong opposition in the Senate, was able in 1907 to effect a treaty arrangement which placed Dominican finances under American supervision. In the course of the debate over this settlement, a number of interesting questions arose. It was pertinently asked whether the American Navy should be used to help creditors collect their debts anywhere in Latin America. It was suggested also that no sanction should be given to the practice among European governments of using armed force to collect private claims. Opponents of President Roosevelt's policy, and they were neither few nor insignificant, urged that such matters should be referred to the Hague Court or to special international commissions for arbitration. To this the answer was made that the United States could not surrender any question coming under the terms of the Monroe Doctrine to the decision of an international tribunal. The position of the administration was very clearly stated by President Roosevelt himself, quote, the country, unquote, he said, quote, which certainly declined to go to war to prevent a foreign government from collecting a just debt. On the other hand, it is very inadvisable to permit any foreign power to take possession, even temporarily, of the customs houses of an American republic 
in order to enforce the payment of its obligations. For such a temporary occupation might turn into a permanent occupation. The only escape from these alternatives may at any time be that we must ourselves undertake to bring about some arrangement by which so much as possible of a just obligation shall be paid. The Monroe Doctrine was negative. It denied to European powers a certain liberty of operation in this hemisphere. The positive obligations resulting from its application by the United States were points now emphasized and developed. The Hague Conference The controversies over Latin American relations and his part in bringing the Russo-Japanese War to a close naturally made a deep impression upon Roosevelt, turning his mind in the direction of the peaceful settlement of international disputes. The subject was, moreover, in the air. As if conscious of impending calamity, the statesmen of the old world, to all outward signs at least, seemed searching for a way to reduce armaments and avoid the bloody and costly trial of international causes by the ancient process of battle. It was the Tsar, Nicholas II, fated to die in one of the terrible holocausts which he helped to bring upon mankind, who summoned the delegates of the nations in the first Hague Peace Conference in 1899. The conference did nothing to reduce military burdens or avoid wars but it did recognize the right of friendly nations to offer the services of mediation to countries at war and did establish a court at the hague for the arbitration of international disputes encouraged by this experiment feeble as it was president roosevelt in nineteen o four proposed a second conference yielding to the czar the honor of issuing the call at this great international assembly held at the hague in nineteen o seven the representatives of the united states proposed a plan for the compulsory arbitration of certain matters of international dispute this was rejected with contempt by germany reduction of armaments likewise proposed in the conference was again deferred in fact nothing was accomplished beyond agreement upon certain rules for the conduct of quote, civilized warfare, end quote, casting a somewhat lurid light upon the quote, Pacific end quote, intentions of most of the powers assembled. The World Tour of the Fleet as if to assure the world that the United States placed little reliance upon the frail reed of peace conferences, Roosevelt the following year, 1908, made an imposing display of American naval power by sending a fleet of 16 battleships on a tour around the globe. On his own authority, 
he ordered the ships to sail out of Hampton Roads and circle the earth by way of the Straits of Magellan, San Francisco, Australia, the Philippines, China, Japan, and the Suez Canal. This enterprise was not, as some critics claimed, a, quote, mere boyish flourish, end quote. President Roosevelt knew how deep was the influence of sea power on the fate of nations. He was aware that no country could have a wide empire of trade and dominion without force adequate to sustain it. The voyage around the world, therefore, served a double purpose. It interested his own country in the naval program of the government, and it reminded other powers that the American giant, though quiet, was not sleeping in the midst of international rivalries. Colonial Administration A Constitutional Question Settled In colonial administration, as in foreign policy, President Roosevelt advanced with firm step in a path already marked out. President McKinley had defined the principles that were to control the development of Puerto Rico and the Philippines. The Republican Party had announced a program of pacification, gradual self-government, and commercial improvement. The only remaining question of importance, to use the popular phrase, quote, does the Constitution follow the flag, end quote, had been answered by the Supreme Court of the United States. Although it was well known that the Constitution did not contemplate the government of dependencies such as the Philippines and Puerto Rico, the Court, by generous and ingenious interpretations, found a way for Congress to apply any reasonable rules required by the occasion. Puerto Rico The government of Puerto Rico was a relatively simple matter. It was a single island with a fairly homogeneous population apart from the Spanish upper class. For a time after military occupation in 1898, it was administered under military rule. This was succeeded by the establishment of civil government under the, quote, Organic Act, unquote, passed by Congress in 1900. The law assured to the Puerto Ricans American protection but withheld American citizenship, a boon finally granted in 1917. It provided for a governor and six executive secretaries appointed by the president with the approval of the Senate, and for a legislature of two houses, one elected by popular native vote and an upper chamber composed of the executive secretaries and five other persons appointed in the same manner. Thus the United States turned back to the provincial system maintained by England in Virginia or New York in old colonial days. The natives were given a voice in their government and the power of initiating laws, but the final word, both in lawmaking and administration, was vested in officers, appointed in Washington.
Such was the plan under which the affairs of Puerto Rico were conducted by President Roosevelt. It lasted until the new Organic Act of 1917. The Philippines The administration of the Philippines presented far more difficult questions. The number of islands, the variety of languages and races, the differences in civilization all combined to challenge the skill of the government. Moreover, there was raging in 1901 a stubborn revolt against American authority, which had to be faced. Following the lines laid down by President McKinley, the evolution of American policy fell into three stages. At first, the islands were governed directly by the president under his supreme military power. In 1901, a civilian commission, headed by William Howard Taft, was selected by the president and charged with the government of the provinces in which order had been restored. Six years later, under the terms of an organic act passed by Congress in 1902, the third stage was reached. The local government passed into the hands of a governor and commission appointed by the president and senate and a legislature, one house elected by popular vote, and an upper chamber composed of the commission. This scheme, like that obtaining in Puerto Rico, remained intact until a Democratic Congress, under President Wilson's leadership, carried the colonial administration into its fourth phase by making both houses elective. Thus, by the steady pursuit of a liberal policy, self-government was extended to the dependencies, but it encouraged rather than extinguished the vigorous movement among the Philippine natives for independence. Cuban Relations Within the sphere of colonial affairs, Cuba, though nominally independent, also presented problems to the government at Washington. In the fine enthusiasm that accompanied the declaration of war on Spain, Congress, unmindful of practical considerations, recognized the independence of Cuba and disclaimed, quote, any disposition or intention to exercise sovereignty, jurisdiction, or control over said island, except for the pacification thereof, end quote. In the settlement that followed the war, however, it was deemed undesirable to set the young republic adrift upon the stormy sea of international politics without a guiding hand. Before withdrawing American troops from the island, Congress in March 1901 enacted and required Cuba to approve a series of restrictions known as the Platt Amendment, limiting her power to incur indebtedness, securing the right of the United States to intervene whenever necessary to protect life and property, and reserving to the United States coaling stations at certain points to be agreed upon. The Cubans made strong protests against what they deemed, quote, infringements of their sovereignty, end quote, but finally, with good grace, accepted their fate. Even when, in 1906, 
President Roosevelt landed American troops in the island to quell a domestic dissension. They acquiesced in the action, evidently regarding it as a distinct warning that they should learn to manage their elections in an orderly manner. The Roosevelt Domestic Policies Social Questions to the Front from the day of his inauguration to the close of his service in 1909, President Roosevelt, in messages, speeches, and interviews, kept up a lively and interesting discussion of trusts, capital, labor, poverty, riches, law-breaking, good citizenship, and kindred themes. Many a subject previously touched upon only by representatives of the minor and dissenting parties, he dignified by a careful examination. That he did this with any fixed design or policy in mind does not seem to be the case. He admitted himself that when he became president, he did not have in hand any settled or far-reaching plan of social betterment. He did have, however, serious convictions on general principles. Quote, I was bent upon making the government, end quote. He wrote, quote, the most efficient possible instrument in helping the people of the United States to better themselves in every way, politically, socially, and industrially. I believed with all my heart in real and thoroughgoing democracy, and I wished to make the democracy industrial as well as political. Although I had only partially formulated the method I believed we should follow. It is thus evident, at least, that he had departed a long way from the old idea of the government as nothing but a great policeman keeping order among the people in a struggle over the distribution of the nation's wealth and resources. Roosevelt's View of the Constitution Equally significant was Roosevelt's attitude toward the Constitution and the office of president. He utterly repudiated the narrow construction of our National Charter. He held that the Constitution, quote, should be treated as the greatest document ever devised by the wit of man to aid a people in exercising every power necessary for its own betterment, not as a straight jacket cunningly fashioned to strangle growth, end quote. He viewed the presidency as he did the Constitution, strict constructionists of the Jeffersonian school, of whom there were many on occasion, even in the Republican Party, had taken a view that the president could do nothing that he was not specifically authorized by the Constitution to do. Roosevelt took exactly the opposite position. It was his opinion that it was not only the president's right, but his duty, quote, to do anything that the needs of the nation demanded, unless such action was forbidden by the Constitution or the laws, end quote. 
he went on to say that he acted, quote, for the common well-being of all our people, whenever and in whatever manner was necessary, unless prevented by direct constitutional or legislative prohibition, end quote. The trusts and railways. To the trust question, Roosevelt devoted especial attention. This was unavoidable. By far, the larger part of the business of the country was done by corporations as distinguished from partnerships and individual owners. The growth of these gigantic aggregations of capital had been the leading feature in American industrial development during the last two decades of the 19th century. In the conquest of business by trusts and, quote, the resulting private fortunes of great magnitude, unquote, the populists and the Democrats had seen a grievous danger to the republic. Quote, Plutocracy has taken the place of democracy. The tariff breeds trusts. Let us destroy, therefore, the tariff and the trusts. End quote. Such was the battle cry which had been taken up by Bryan and his followers. President Roosevelt counted vigorously. He rejected the idea that the trusts were the product of the tariff or of governmental action of any kind. He insisted that they were the outcome of, quote, natural economic forces, end quote. One, destructive competition among businessmen, compelling them to avoid ruin by cooperation in fixing prices. Two, the growth of markets on a national scale and even international scale calling for vast accumulations of capital to carry on such business. 3. The possibility of immense savings by the union of many plants under one management. In the corporation, he saw a new stage in the development of American industry. Unregulated competition he regarded as, quote, the source of evils which all men concede must be remedied if this civilization of ours is to survive. The notion, therefore, that these immense business concerns should be or could be broken up by a decree of law, Roosevelt considered absurd. At the same time, he proposed that quote, evil trusts. End quote, should be prevented from quote, wrongdoing of any kind. End quote. That is, punished for plain swindling, for making agreements to limit output, for refusing to sell to customers who dealt with rival firms, and for conspiracies with railways to ruin competitors by charging high freight rates, and for similar abuses. Accordingly, he proposed not the destruction of the trusts, but their regulation by the government. This, he contended, would preserve the advantages of business on a national scale. 
while preventing the evils that accompanied it. The railway company he declared to be a public servant. Quote, its rates should be just to and open to all shippers alike. End quote. So, he answered those who thought that trusts and railway combinations were private concerns to be managed solely by their owners without let or hindrance, and also those who thought trusts and railway combinations could be abolished by tariff reduction or criminal prosecution. The Labor Question on the labor question, then pressing to the front in public interest, President Roosevelt took advanced ground for his time. He declared that the working man, single-handed and empty-handed, threatened with starvation if unemployed, was no match for the employer who was able to bargain and wait. This led him accordingly to accept the principle of the trade union, namely that only by collective bargaining can labor be put on a footing to measure its strength equally with capital. While he severely arraigned labor leaders who advocated violence and destructive doctrines, he held that, quote, the organization of labor into trade unions and federations is necessary is beneficent and is one of the greatest possible agencies in the attainment of a true industrial as well as a true political democracy in the United States. Quote. The last resort of trade unions in labor disputes, the strike, he approved in case negotiations failed to secure quote, a fair deal. End quote. He thought, however, that labor organizations, even if wisely managed, could not solve all the pressing social questions of the time. The aid of the government at many points he believed to be necessary to eliminate undeserved poverty, industrial diseases, unemployment, and the unfortunate consequences of industrial accidents. In his first message of 1901, for instance, he urged that workers injured in industry should have certain and ample compensation. From time to time, he advocated other legislation to obtain what he called, quote, a larger measure of social and industrial justice, end quote. Great Riches and Taxation even the challenge of the radicals, such as the populists, who allege that, quote, the toil of millions is boldly stolen to build up colossal fortunes for a few, end quote, challenges which his predecessors did not consider worthy of notice. President Roosevelt refused to let pass without an answer. In his first message, he denied the truth of the common saying that the rich were growing richer and the poor were growing poorer. He asserted that on the contrary, the average man, wage worker, farmer, and small businessman was better off than ever before in the history of our country. 
that there had been abuses in the accumulation of wealth he did not pretend to ignore, but he believed that even immense fortunes on the whole represented positive benefits conferred upon the country. Nevertheless, he felt that grave dangers to the safety and the happiness of the people lurked in great inequalities of wealth. In 1906, he wrote that he wished it were in his power to prevent the heaping up of enormous fortunes. The next year, to the astonishment of many leaders in his own party, he boldly announced in a message to Congress that he approved both income and inheritance taxes, then generally viewed as populist or democratic measures. He even took the stand that such taxes should be laid in order to bring about a more equitable distribution of wealth and greater equality of opportunity among citizens. End of section one. Recording by Thelma Meyer.